This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie Pack, your host. Today's episode, uh, we're going to continue. This will be the last episode focusing on politics. And today we're going to be talking about confirmation bias. A couple episodes ago, we talked about cognitive dissonance. These two are kind of like cousins and they are, they're standalone and that's why I'm doing their own episodes. However, they do interact with each other and they can play off of each other. So confirmation bias, some of you may have heard of it. It's the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that's consistent with our own existing beliefs. So some people might call this cherry picking. It's a biased approach that is largely unintentional. Most people, if you were to ask them, most people like to think that they're rational and that they're logical and they look at facts and they take in information through those avenues. And yet all of us have this confirmation bias. So it's not necessarily having it or not having it. It's more along the lines of, am I going to be aware? Am I going to look for, am I going to check my biases, knowing that I have them and knowing that they tend to influence how I interpret information and how I process information and make decisions. So let's talk about some of the ways that confirmation bias can show up or how we, the the patterns that it can take. So there's four primary domains of thought in which confirmation bias affects people. The first one is a bias search for information. This means that the confirmation bias causes people to search for information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs, and then they ignore information that are going to contradict those beliefs. The second domain is a bias favoring of information. This means that the confirmation bias causes people to give more weight to information that supports their beliefs and then less weight to the information that contradicts their beliefs. The next one is biased interpretation of information. So this means that confirmation bias causes people to interpret information in a way that confirms their beliefs, even if the information could be interpreted in a way that contradicts them. And then the last one is a biased recall of information. So this means that the confirmation bias causes people to remember information that supports their beliefs, and then they forget information that contradicts their beliefs, or they incorrectly remember contradictory information as having supported their beliefs. So there's generally two primary cognitive mechanisms which are used in order to explain why people experience the confirmation bias. The first one is challenge avoidance. This signifies the fact that people don't want to find out that they're wrong, right? I think we all tend to want to see ourselves through a positive image or we want to believe that we're intelligent. We want other people to think that we're intelligent. And so we tend to avoid going down paths that's going to prove to us that we're wrong and then we'll be embarrassed or we might feel even some shame about that. And so we're going to just avoid that if at all possible. The second is reinforcement seeking. So this is the fact that people want to find out that they're right, right? And so we're going to um, find information that reinforces what we already believe and proves to us that we are right. So 
both of these factors, the challenge avoidance and the reinforcement seeking, are specifically um, designed to minimize cognitive dissonance. Now, like I said, we did an episode on cognitive dissonance like two podcasts ago. And, but basically, cognitive dissonance is the psychological stress that people experience when they hold two or more contradictory beliefs at the same time. And so this challenge avoidance um, is going to help us decide which of those two beliefs that we're holding that contradict each other is more accurate. And it's going to typically favor um, our beliefs, our attitudes, our opinions, kind of how we are as a person. Um, And then the reinforcement seeking is also going to kind of prove to us that we're right. We'll find information that proves that. Now, information that would contradict that also exists simultaneously, but we tend to, again, favor or seek out the information that reinforces that we were correct. So let's talk for a minute. I mean, the confirmation experimentation began in the 1960s, and it revealed our tendency to confirm existing beliefs rather than questioning them or seeking new ones. And other research has revealed our single-minded need to reinforce our own ideas. Um, a psychologist, Sharam Heshmet, who's a PhD, explains that confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like a certain idea or concept to be true, they end up believing it to be true. They are motivated by wishful thinking. This error leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views or prejudices one would like to be true. The other thing that research has shown is that the so-called evidence that convinces us that what we already believe is also true really doesn't have to be that strong because we already have this predisposition, right? Or we already have this prejudice. So when we're looking for information, it doesn't take much to add to that because we already have this foundation or we already have kind of this bank of information that's saying it's true. So we don't really need that much to then reinforce and be like, yeah, that's true. Confirmation bias is so powerful that a study that was done by Michael Cipriano and Thomas Garuka showed that even when there is concrete evidence showing that our beliefs are wrong and even when holding on to these beliefs might cost us money, we tend to stick to our incorrect conclusions. So confirmation bias really is kind of in the makeup of our psyche. And I would say kind of like on this functional level or emotional level wants to show that we are right. We'll talk some more about kind of how this plays out in the psyche. Now, like many mental models, confirmation bias was first identified by the ancient Greeks. In the history of the Peloponnesian War, it was described as this, quote, For it is a habit of humanity to entrust to careless hope what they long for, and to use sovereign reason to thrust aside what they do not fancy. Now, maybe a more modern um, take on this was given by Warren Buffett when he said, What the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. So let's talk about why we do this. Neuropsychologists like Dan Siegel tell us that once a belief pattern has been established, our neurons want to fire in line with that pattern, which makes it difficult to change a belief system. Scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson say that some people will accept whatever they hear on the grapevine just because it suits their worldview. 
not because it is actually true or because they have evidence to support it. The striking thing is that it would not take much effort to establish validity in most of these cases, but people prefer reassurance to research. Now, some theorists have suggested that in the face of an increasingly complex world, our brains find it easier and more comfortable to make decisions based on these old neuron patterns. So trying to filter through all of the possibly conflicting information that is available is just too much work. And in some cases, this boils down to the probability that we prefer consistency to truth. Uh, confirmation bias can affect your judgment, sometimes in ways that can be quite damaging to you. And one problem is that even when we know the bias of previous beliefs might be affecting our judgment and our relationships, we will still stick with these old beliefs. Now, many of you probably in the current uh, political circumstances nowadays, when I just said that, are like, oh yeah, like it, it is impacting my relationships. It's making it difficult to have conversations with family at family reunions or during the holidays. It just makes it really difficult. So even though there's this cost to the relationships that maybe we value and that we've put a priority and an emphasis on, uh, pe people will still be ingrained in their thinking because it reinforces that they are right and that they don't have to kind of go through that process of looking at information and recognizing that they were wrong and the cost that came with that. Now, our use of this cognitive shortcut is understandable. Evaluating evidence, especially when it's complicated or unclear, requires a great deal of mental energy. And so our brains prefer to take shortcuts. This saves the time needed to make decisions, especially when we're under pressure. As many evolutionary scientists have pointed out, our minds are unequipped to handle the modern world. For most of human history, people experienced very little new information during their lifetimes, and decisions tended to be survival-based. Now, we're constantly receiving new information. We have to make numerous complex choices each day. So to stave off the overwhelm, we have this natural tendency to take shortcuts. In The Case for Motivated Reasoning, Ziva Kunda wrote, We give special weight to information that allows us to come to the conclusion we want to reach. Accepting information that confirms our beliefs is easy and requires little mental energy. Contradicting information causes us to shy away, grasping for a reason to discard it. In The Little Book of Stupidity, Saya Mohajar wrote, The confirmation bias is so fundamental to your development and your reality that you might not even realize it is happening. We look for evidence that supports our beliefs and opinions about the world, but excludes those that run contrary to our own. In an attempt to simplify the world and make it conform to our expectations, we have been blessed with the gift of cognitive biases. And then Francis Bacon said, the human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, draws all things else to support and agree with it. And though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side, yet these it either neglects and despises or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects. So Lewis Carroll stated that we are what we believe we are. Now, it also seems that the world is also what we believe it to be. And how do we, you know, are we just destined to see the world through our experience, our lens, our beliefs, our attitudes, and we can't change that? Like that's just our brain's natural tendency. And so we're just kind of lost to that. Well, no, we wouldn't be doing a podcast episode if 
that was the case. But I think we need to be aware that we are all prone to confirmation bias and that it has a powerful impact on what we see and therefore what we believe or how we experience situations. So let's talk about just sticking with our political theme, the Nixon-Kennedy debates. And this is taken uh, from history.com. So let's just look at you know how um, our last episode with author Bill Eddy, he talked about how media today has changed the way we take in information, um, the way we think about information. He talked about kind of moving away from print, reading print and seeing like visual media, which we do now, and kind of the downfall of that, like, or, or at least how it changes the parts of the brain that are taking in the information. So, but let's talk about this um, Nixon-Kennedy debate. So this was 1960. John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon squared off in the first televised presidential debates in American history. Now, the Kennedy-Nixon debates not only had a major impact on the election's outcome, but they ushered in a new era in which crafting a public image and taking advantage of media exposure became essential ingredients of a successful political campaign. They also heralded the central role television has continued to play in the democratic process. So the U.S. presidential election of 1960 came at a divisive time or a decisive time in American history. The country was engaged in a heated Cold War with the Soviet Union, which had just taken the lead in the space race by launching the Sputnik satellite. The rise of Fidel Castro's revolutionary regime in Cuba had heightened fears about the spread of communism in the Western Hemisphere. On the domestic front, the struggle for civil rights and desegregation had deeply divided the nation, raising crucial questions about the state of democracy in the United States. At a time when the need for strong leadership was all too obvious, two vastly different candidates vied for the presidency. John F. Kennedy, a young but dynamic Massachusetts senator from a powerful New England family, and Richard Nixon, a seasoned lawmaker who was currently serving as vice president. With little more than a single unremarkable term in the U.S. Senate under his belt, the 43-year-old Kennedy lacked Nixon's extensive foreign policy experience and had the disadvantage of being one of the first Catholics to run for president on a major party ticket. Nixon, by contrast, had spent nearly eight years as the country's second-in-command after an illustrious career in Congress, during which he cast crucial votes on a variety of domestic issues. He became one of the global communism's most outspoken critics, and he helped expose Alger Hiss's alleged espionage attempt. All of this was done by the age of 39. The rivals campaigned tirelessly throughout the summer of 1960, with Nixon inching ahead in the polls to gain a slim lead. When the season began to turn, however, so did the tables. Nixon took a major hit in August when a reporter asked President Dwight D. Eisenhower to name some of his vice president's contributions. Exhausted and irritated after a long press conference, Eisenhower replied, if you would give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Now, Eisenhower's remark was meant to be self-deprecating about himself and about just how tired and like his own mental faculties weren't working. But the Democrats promptly used it in a television commercial that ended with the statement, President Eisenhower could not remember, but the voters will remember. So they kind of twisted what he meant and made it more about that he couldn't remember what Nixon had done or it would take him time to think about what Nixon had done. 
Now that same month, Nixon bashed his knee on a car door while campaigning in North Carolina, and he developed an infection that landed him in the hospital. He emerged two weeks later, frail, sallow, and 20 pounds underweight. So on the evening of September 26th, the two candidates arrive at the CBS broadcast facility in downtown Chicago to the first televised presidential debate in American history. Nixon's streak of bad luck continued. Stepping out of the car, he banged his bad knee and exacerbated his earlier injury. The vice president had recently suffered a bout of the flu and was still running a low fever. He had nonetheless spent a grueling day on the campaign trail and he looked drained. Kennedy, meanwhile, had been holed up in a hotel with his aides for an entire weekend, fielding practice questions and resting up for the first of what they called the four great debates. Despite Nixon's exhaustion and Kennedy's preparedness, the Republican and Democrat were more or less evenly matched when it came to substance. Each held forth skillfully and presented remarkably similar agendas. Both emphasized national security, the threat of communism, the need to strengthen the U.S. military, and the importance of building a brighter future for America. Indeed, after Kennedy's opening statement, Nixon said that he subscribes completely to the spirit that Senator Kennedy had expressed that night. And yet, so most radio listeners called the first debate either a draw, like a tie, or they pronounced Nixon the victor of that debate. However, the senator from Massachusetts won, like by a broad margin, those who viewed it on TV. So what accounted for this discrepancy? Well, for one thing, television was a relatively recent addition to America's living rooms, and politicians were still seeking the right formula for interacting with the public in this new, more intimate way. And Kennedy nailed it during the great debates. He stared directly into the camera as he answered the question. Nixon, on the other hand, looked off to the side to address the various reporters, which came across as shifting his gaze to avoid contact with the public. And this was damaging for Nixon, who who already had uh, this derisive nickname, Tricky Dick. So the gap in the candidates' on-air presence was huge on that outcome. And people often will talk about just how much more Kennedy was attractive. And he had this suntanned skin. He had been out campaigning. So he looked great that way. Now, Nixon, on the other hand, had this pale complexion and a fast-growing stubble that together left him this perpetually grayish pallor. And during an interview with Walter Cronkite, two weeks before the debate, the vice president had confided I can shave within 30 seconds before I go on television and still have a beard. So at his aide's urging, Nixon submitted to this coat of lazy shave. That was a drugstore pancake makeup he had used in the past to make his five o'clock shadow dim. But when the candidate started sweating under the hot studio lights, the powder seemed to melt off his face, giving way to visible beads of perspiration. It also didn't help that Nixon had chosen a light gray suit for the occasion, which faded into the backdrop of the set and seemed to match his ashen skin tone. So reacting to the vice president's on-air appearance, the Chicago mayor, Richard Daley, reportedly said, my God, they've embalmed him before he even died. So let's just talk about, again, that, that distinction between maybe what we would hear. So those on the radio, listening to the debate on the radio, either thought that they were just evenly matched and there there was no clear winner, 
or that Nixon actually edged ahead and he was the victor. While those who are watching on TV clearly, like from a broad margin, declared Kennedy had won the debate. When you think about that, it comes down to what we see and how we interpret what we see really has this lasting impact on how we think about events and and even what we're actually hearing. A poem by Shannon L. Alder illustrates this concept. The poem is, read it with sorrow and you will feel hate. Read it with anger and you will feel vengeful. Read it with paranoia and you will feel confusion. Read it with empathy and you will feel compassion. Read it with love and you will feel flattery. Read it with hope and you will feel positive. Read it with humor and you will feel joy. Read it without bias and you will feel peace. Do not read it at all and you will not feel a thing. So I think we have to look at, um, you know, if we remember this debate between Kennedy and Nixon in 1960, and we look at where television is today, right? That was where the first debate was ever televised. And today we have so much TV going on and even, you know, reality TV. I mean, we call it reality TV. It's not that real. Like there are still makeup artists. There's still some scripting. There's a lot that gets cut so that they can very much pick what the viewers are seeing and feeling and how we process the information that they're giving us. And yet we will think that that's real. We think that if we're seeing it on TV and they call it reality TV, then that's a real thing. Now, the first and most important step to overcoming your own confirmation bias is to be consciously aware of your reasoning process and to constantly ask yourself whether you are distorting the way in which you process information in an attempt to confirm your pre-existing beliefs. Now, I think we have to acknowledge to ourselves that whether we like it or not, we judge people based on how they sound, how they look, and the more attractive a person is to us, the more grace we offer them and the more leniency we give to them, or even the more favoritism we offer. So when we're aware that we do this, then we can use some debiasing techniques um, in order to reduce the information or the influence that confirmation bias has on us. For example, if you find yourself immediately disregarding a news article, whose headline contradicts your beliefs in some way, you could ask yourself, why did I do that? And whether you should read it instead of disregarding it immediately. You can even go further than that and decide that for each article that you read, which supports your point of view, you will read at least one that contradicts it. Beyond helping you overcome the confirmation bias, doing this has the important added benefit of helping you understand the opposing point of view better. This is crucial to your ability to defend your own stance and to communicate about the topic with others. And it's something that very few people bother to do in this fast-paced news society that we live in. The Farnham Street blog also provides an opportunity for us to assess how confirmation bias affects you. And so it has five questions that you need to consider and ask yourself when you're bringing in information and processing it. So the first question is, which part of this did I automatically agree with? The second question is, which part did I ignore or skim over without realizing? The third is, how did I react to the points which I agreed or disagreed with? Question four is, did this confirm any ideas I already had and why? And then the fifth is, what if I thought opposite of those ideas? 
So being cognizant of confirmation bias is not easy, but with practice, it is possible to recognize the role it plays in the way we interpret information. In Completeness, The Proof and Paradox of Kurt Gödel, Rebecca Goldstein said, All truths, even those that had seemed so certain as to be immune to the very possibility of revision, are essentially manufactured. Indeed, the very notion of the objectively true is a socially constructed myth. Our knowing minds are not embedded in truth. Rather, the entire notion of truth is embedded in our minds, which are themselves the unwitting latkeys of organizational forms of influence. So what does confirmation bias look like for us today in this fast-paced world? Well, I would say, if nothing else, it's increased. And that is concerning. One of my Facebook friends, he is a professor of anthropology at one of the universities here in Utah. He's actually at the university that my, one of my daughters attends. He was talking about how over the years he has found it very useful to explain structural injustice, prejudice, and privilege, especially racism and sexism, in terms of imposter syndrome and entitlement syndrome. So all of us go through our lives and experiences, successes and failures. Our successes and failures are always the sum total of a combination of things that we do, our own effort and ability, and things outside of our control. Things that other people do and larger social and institutional and political structures and forces have. Now, imposter syndrome is when we tend to explain our failures largely in terms of our own contributions, our own shortcomings. But we explain our successes in terms of things outside of our control, forces outside of us. I got into a great graduate program, but probably largely because of the efforts of others. People who wrote letters of recommendation, people who mentored me, and maybe even larger forces outside of my control, like affirmative action or just sheer luck, right? So we don't tend to put that emphasis on our efforts. We put it on the efforts of things that we have no control over. Maybe, another example, maybe I don't even actually belong here and they're going to figure it out. Conversely, I didn't get this job because I'm not good enough. It was my own shortcomings that were the problem. If only I had been better or I had done something better. Now, entitlement syndrome is the opposite. I explain my successes largely in terms of my own ability and effort and, I, and my work and my awesomeness, right? When I fail, it is the fault of people and forces outside of my control. I succeed because of my efforts and I fail in spite of them. So what does all of this have to do with structural inequality and privilege? Now, there are a number of credible studies that my friend cited that indicate that people who come from more privileged backgrounds are more likely to have entitlement syndrome, and people from less privileged backgrounds are more likely to have imposter syndrome. So think about that for a minute. People who have more advantages and more social capital at their disposal People who were born into positions of advantage that they personally did nothing to earn are nevertheless more likely to explain their successes in terms of their own virtue and failures in terms of forces outside of their control and agency. And people who actually have more structural disadvantages to overcome, to succeed, are nevertheless more likely to attribute their, their successes to forces outside of their control and to ascribe failures to their own personal shortcomings. So we have that flipped, right? 
Now, the other thing, men are more likely to credit themselves for their successes and blame others for their failures than women are. Uh, white people are more likely to credit their own effort and ability in their successes and blame outside forces for their failings than people of color are. The most insane part, my friend said, is that we don't just do this with respect to explaining or understanding our own failings and successes. We do it for others as well. We all do it. When a white male succeeds, all of us across the demographic spectrum are more likely to attribute his success to his personal effort and ability. And when he fails, we're more likely to assume he failed because of the forces outside of his control. When a woman of color succeeds, so women of color are kind of the lowest on the spectrum of privilege. When a woman of color succeeds, we are all more likely to attribute her success to forces outside her control. But when she fails, we are more likely to blame her personally. Now, the reality is, of course, that when a woman of color overcomes barriers and succeeds, her personal effort and strength and ability and striving are more likely to be a factor in it than they are for a white guy. We get it exactly backwards in a way that totally rewards, reinforces, and conceals privilege. We look at the world around us, at ourselves and others, at successes and failures everywhere, and we actually imagine it as a world in which the deck is stacked against men and white people. And that bizarre fantasy is manifested in how we tend to think about the successes and failures of men and women, white people, and people of color. So I think that's one thing to look at when we are thinking about confirmation bias, that, that already socialized messaging has put some things in place that actually are going to make us interpret things wrong. And we're not even aware of that. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. once quoted Victor Hugo as saying, if a soul is left in the darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness. Now, I think that's something to think about um, as we look at politics, as we look at the political and social structures that we have in place, and as we are looking at information that helps us interpret the socialized messages we're receiving, social structures that are in place, and how the political structures work and or don't work. There was recently a TED Talk. It was titled, How Can We Face the Future Without Fear Together? So I'm going to quote from the script of that TED Talk. He said, my favorite phrase in all of politics, it's a very American phrase, is we the people. Why we the people? Because it says that we all share collective responsibility for our collective future. And that's how things really are and should be. Have you noticed how magical thinking has taken over our politics? So we say, all you've got to do is elect this strong leader and he or she will solve all of our problems for us. Believe me, that is magical thinking. And then we get the extremes, the far right, the far left, the extreme religious and the extreme anti-religious, the far right dreaming of a golden age that never was, the far left dreaming of a utopia that never will be, and the religious and anti-religious equally convinced that all it takes is God or the absence of God to save us from ourselves. That too is magical thinking because the only people who will save us from ourselves is we the people, all of us together. And when we do that, 
When we move from the politics of me to the politics of all of us together, we rediscover those beautiful counterintuitive truths that a nation is strong when it cares for the weak, that it becomes rich when it cares for the poor. It becomes invulnerable when it cares about the vulnerable. That is what makes great nations. I think it's important as we are heading into, you know, there's always election seasons. It seems like there's always an election with some people being elected every two years, others every four years, some every six years. There's always elections going on. Sometimes we look at the larger elections, the presidential elections, and maybe we participate in those elections and our more small community politics aren't necessarily interesting to us. Although those also have a large impact on our day in and day out day out life. I think as we have talked about in these past episodes about politics, I hope that you've had some, maybe some thoughts that maybe occurred to you that hadn't necessarily, or maybe some things kind of came into focus that were unfocused or unclear before. I would hope that you've had some conversations with people that went better than you were expecting, or you had a conversation with somebody who doesn't agree with you and you were actually able to hear that person and not just focus on the argument about who's right or who's wrong. As I've been doing these episodes over the past month, it's made me think about a lot of things and I've had some great conversations. I thought about when I interviewed my brother and he was talking about how we expect politicians to get along and not to disagree and how important it is to disagree better and to have better conversations. For me, that was something that I I thought about as I interacted with different people, maybe people that I don't always see eye to eye with. I had a you know family reunion this month as well. And just being able to talk to people and see people and not necessarily see them for their ideas or for our disagreements. I think that's part of disagreeing better. There's a quote that I really have I found it several years ago and kind of put it on my phone and I think about it often or I read it often. It's by Parker Palmer. It says, truth is an eternal conversation about things that matter, conducted with passion and discipline. Truth is the process of inquiry and dialogue itself that keeps testing old conclusions and coming up with new ones. It is commitment to the conversation. And I really like that because I I look at my younger self, you know, especially mm, I would say just from young ages, even through high school, I was really interested in knowing how things worked, particularly I, you know, I was never good at like physics or things like that, um, how things worked, but more like social structures, emotions, like those structures that we had, I was really interested in how things worked. And I really wanted answers. I think that's part of immaturity or being immaturely developed, right? That I would figure out something or I would get enough answers that then like I knew how to live and I knew how to conduct myself and it would like eliminate any anxiety or anxiousness or nervousness or fears that I might have. And, you know, one of the things that I realized as the older I got is that there's never going to be a time in which I don't have questions. And that doesn't bother me the more I've aged. That doesn't bother me the way that I think it would have for my younger self. I found a quote by Neil Donald Walsh, 
He says, never stop doubting. Never stop questioning. Never, ever assume you have all the answers. Having all the answers kills the question itself, renders it lifeless. And you too. Keep looking. Keep seeking. Never, ever find it all. Because when you find it all, you deny that there is more. And there is never not more. I think I came across this quote, I want to say, 10 years ago. And it really struck me in this way of, you know, I, I study the brain. I understand how that works. And I started looking at the more that I like came up with an answer, I was signifying to my brain, like we don't need to think about it anymore. We have an answer. Now in some things, you know, that's helpful. I think I talked about on one podcast, like that my kids and myself and my husband, we have these different routes to our house and everybody has their preferred route. We tested it out to see, you know, we do this still, but we test it out to see which route is the fastest. And depending on traffic and lights, it, it varies, but it really doesn't vary that much. You know, one may beat one to the intersection and get a green light and they get through the other time the other person gets through on the green light, but we're really getting there about the same time. And, and so again, there's some things that we find the answer to and we can stop questioning, right? Like sometimes I will explain it like, you know, two plus two is four. And you have to kind of understand the value of numbers in order to understand why two plus two is four and why two plus two will never be anything but four, right? It, it can't physically, mathematically, in any way, two plus two will always equal four. So there's some things like that that our brain decides, okay, that's how it is, and that's never going to change. Things like the law of gravity. If I throw something up, it's going to come down, right? Somebody can say, I guess, I don't really believe in the law of gravity. That's fine. I'm just not going to stand next to them if they throw something up. So I think there's some things that maybe we can settle on. These are like big T truths and they just are truths that are never changing, but they also maybe don't impact our lives the way some of the little T truths, the things that are maybe my truth or somebody else's truth, but not necessarily big truth do. And I think it's important to look at those things and to always seek questions, always have answers and say to the mind, like, we're never going to be done with this. This isn't something that we can simplify. This isn't something that we can figure out once and be done with it. I think that when we look for questions, right? When we look for nuances, when we look for differences and diversity, I think there's a beauty that we can see if we can get out of feeling anxious or nervous about the differences or about the nuances. And like Parker Palmer said, I think truth is an eternal conversation about things that matter conducted with passion and discipline. That doesn't mean that we always see things the same. I think this planet is far too small for all of us to get our way or for all of us to be right all the time. And I think that process of inquiry and dialogue itself is what's beautiful and is what is meaningful and is really where we find and connect with each other in a way that allows us to care for each other, to see each other, and to come together and make our nation great. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there is something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie.
the legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.